Hi there. My name's Dave. I'm one of the elders here. Our pastor, Dane, is actually visiting one of our partner churches today. Beacon Community Church exists through a whole variety of people coming to invest here, including people in other churches who partner with us, send mission teams, finances, pray for us. So Dane's there visiting and encouraging one of those fellow partners. Like many of you probably, I live in a house here in New England that's around 100 years old, and there are different problems that come up. And recently, we were trying to address one of these problems, and we hired a structural engineer to come take a look at our garage. We wanted to do some updates, get a better garage door, things like that, repair some damage possibly. So the engineer took a look at everything, gave me a nice rundown of things, and then I said, well, let's, let's go look in the basement as well. Now, the other thing that I was doing is I was, I was doing some work on my deck, just do-it-yourself work, but I didn't really want the structural engineer to look at that. You know, that, that wasn't relevant to him. But as we were walking towards the basement, he just sort of popped his head down and said, what's going on down here? And started asking me a couple of tough, tough questions about some of the posts I, I put in there. And it, it was a little bit awkward. Uh, we, we just kind of moved on, answered his questions, and we walked down to the basement. And today we're going to see uh, in our passage in Ezra 9 how... Something comes up that's a little bit uncomfortable, a little awkward. The light of God's word is shining on an area of sin among the people. We're going to see how they respond in confession that Ezra leads and grief. So in your Bibles, please turn to Ezra chapter 9. In the Bibles provided for you, this is on page 395. If you don't have a Bible today, we would love to give you one as a gift. Outside in the entryway, there are some black hardback Bibles. You can take one just as a gift as you go. We'd love you to have a Bible. So let's join in reading Ezra chapter 9. We're going to have it there on the screen as well. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hands of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, 
but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it up from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be so angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Here at Beacon, we primarily preach through books of the Bible. We've been preaching through the book of Ezra. We've titled this series, Return from Exile. To give a little bit of context here, at the beginning of Ezra 9, Ezra, it starts out saying, after these things had been done. So what were those things that had been done? Let me give you a quick reminder of what's been happening in the book of Ezra so far, and a little bit before. So God had brought the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land, an amazing, victorious provision of the land there. And God had allowed them to establish kings there in the land. But over time, the people's sin became more and more evident. As they were living in the nation of Israel, they were worshiping other gods, idols of the land. There was injustice going on. And eventually God said, there needs to be a consequence for this. There, there needs to be a penalty for this sin. So God allowed the people of Israel to be conquered. Specifically for the kingdom of Judah, they were exiled into Babylon. And then the book of Ezra starts off with how God began working in several different Persian kings to allow a remnant of the people to come back to the land of Israel, to come back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding the temple. And then we see specifically, as we get introduced to Ezra as a character in chapter 7, and in, in chapter 7, it talks about that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So Ezra came back a little bit later from the initial group, brought a few others, and helped establish some of the temple worship practices, bringing Levites, which are temple servants, as well as priests. And we see at the end of chapter 8, sort of a, a culmination of a lot of this that receive them giving sacrifices. So in, in chapter 8, verse 35, right before our passage, you see that at that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and as a sin offering, 12 male goats. So we see there temple worship being reestablished according to the teachings of God's law. And Ezra was part of that, teaching God's law to the people. But then, in Ezra chapter 9, we see a turning point. There's some sin that's come to light. Some of the people, even some of the chief's leaders, 
had been marrying peoples of the land. Now, let's, let's give a little bit of context to this. It's important to understand what this passage is saying and what it's not saying. So I want to provide a little bit of um, biblical context to help frame our understanding of what's going on here. So a key passage that relates to our text is Deuteronomy 7. So that's from the law of Moses. That would have been something that Ezra would have been teaching to those peoples there, the Israelites reestablished in Jerusalem. In, in Ezra 7, it talks about the nations in the promised land that God's going to give. It gives a, actually a list of nations that's very similar to what we see here. In, in Deuteronomy 7, it says, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And then it goes on to talk about when you go into the land, it says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And, and then it actually gives a reason why you should not do this. It says, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So, so that's the reason. It's saying you're not supposed to marry these other people of other nations primarily because they would potentially turn you away from serving the Lord to serving other gods. We saw this really displayed poignantly in the history of Israel. King Solomon, who was the son of David, he was an incredibly wise king. God granted him amazing wisdom. He actually wrote a significant portion of the Bible, Proverbs, Song of Solomon. But in his latter years, he married women of other nations worshiped other gods. And in 1 Kings 11, it talks about that. It says, when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. And then it says, for Solomon after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites. So Solomon began worshiping other gods, idols of the nations. And so fundamentally what's going on here is it's not, it's not an ethnic distinction that, that God is making, but it's a spiritual one. It's saying God wants the marriage to be between people who worship the Lord, that they could be true to that together. And we get some evidence of this as well in seeing places in the Bible where people from a different ethnic background, even in the Old Testament, came to know the Lord and follow him. One example is Rahab, who, although she was a Canaanite, when Joshua and the other Israelites were coming in, she, she trusted in the Lord, she gave favor to them, and the Lord allowed her to marry the people of Israel and even to become an ancestor of Jesus. That's an example of someone who chose to trust the Lord, even though they were coming from one of these other ethnic backgrounds. Another example we see is actually in our, our book of Ezra, as they were celebrating the Passover in Ezra 6, in 621, it says, this Passover, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had turned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So it's quite possible, likely, that there were people who had said, wow, I, I want to follow the Lord. I want to be a part of this community and trust in him. Certainly we see in the New Testament God bringing this out more clearly in Matthew 28 saying to bring the gospel to people of all nations. And you see ethnic diversity in the early church. So Ezra 9 is not saying that inter-ethnic or interracial marriage is wrong. That's the, that has been a historical thing, even in the United States. Laws related to interracial marriage, unjust laws, unjust attitudes, practices, that's not, what's, that's not what's the scope here. All people are created by God, have dignity before God, and it's actually a really beautiful thing when people of different ethnic backgrounds who share a faith in Christ can come together in marriage. 
Okay, so that's what it's not about, but what is it about? Well, it, it, even here, it talks about in, in verse, uh, verse 2 here that they'd not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. So even here in Ezra 9, the idea is this idolatry. And we think about this, this principle of marrying someone who shares your faith. Fast forward to the New Testament, we actually get that reiterated. So Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, for example. He says, a wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord. So there's a command from Paul about specifically marrying those who share a faith in Jesus. You say, what, what is the value of marrying someone who shares your faith? Well, going back to the Deuteronomy passage, there is a potential for a spouse who doesn't believe to help drag you away in your faith. And, and there can also just be some practical challenges. How do you align your life together? But I want to speak a word for people in a couple different situations. So you may be in a situation today where perhaps you are married to someone who doesn't believe, but through no fault of your own. Perhaps you came to faith after you were married and your spouse has not yet believed in Christ. Or perhaps your spouse used to profess faith in Christ and no longer does. This, is not, this passage is not uh, a commandment towards you. There's actually a, a different passage that, that speaks to that situation. This is in 1 Peter 3, where, where Peter addresses this. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, and they see respectful and pure conduct. And this parallel principle would apply to husbands, to love your wife, regardless of whether they have faith in Christ, to seek to be an example to them. In, in the way you live your life. It's also possible, perhaps, you got married to a non-believer in your past through, through a lapse of judgment. You knew it wasn't the right thing to do, but you did it anyway. And what I want to encourage you today is that there's tremendous grace and hope in Jesus who can forgive your sins, who wants you to come to him no matter what your background is. And we're going to see that as we get into our passage. We're going to talk about God's steadfast love and mercy it's possible as well that you're single, that you, that you want to be married, and maybe you're finding it difficult to find a spouse who shares your faith. That's a, that can be a real struggle. And I just want to acknowledge that today. God is calling you to remain true to him and ultimately to recognize marriage is temporary. Our lives are temporary. We're only going to be here for a limited period of time. And what God is asking us is to have an eternal perspective on our lives, to say, would you trust me? Would you love me more? than a desire to find a spouse and, and to, to keep your standards of finding someone that would trust in Christ, but re recognizing that this is not going to be easy, but God wants to meet you there. So we've seen Ezra speak about the sin of the people. As we continue to look, we're going to see Ezra grieve. We're going to see Ezra confess, and then we're going to see God's steadfast love and mercy in this passage as well that points us forward to Christ. I also want us to consider this idea of the idolatry of the people of the day. I think it can be tempting, perhaps, in our time here in Belmont to think, ah, oh, we're not going to worship statues. That's not relevant to us. But let's ask a question. What, what were those statues really about? I'll give you an example. So Baal was one of the gods of the ancient Near East that some of these people would have worshipped. The idea behind Baal was you worship Baal and that'll get you rain. And that will help your crops be successful, help you, yourself and your family and your livestock multiply, and basically that you would have success, financial 
success, family success, those are things we still want. And even if you think to yourself, I'll never worship a statue, what does that represent? And in what in your life do you desire most? And so if you aren't a believer in Christ today, I would ask you to reflect on that. You probably don't worship statues. Maybe you do. I, I, you know, I don't know exactly who's in our audience today, but you probably don't. But I still want to ask you, what do you consider most important in your life? What do you spend most of your money and time focused on? And will that ultimately satisfy you? So we've seen here the sin of the people in this intermarrying with idolatrous peoples of the land. But now let's move on and talk about Ezra's response. Ezra's response in grief, confession, and then we'll see God's steadfast love and mercy in that. So let's look here at, at verse 3. So how does Ezra respond? He says, As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. So Ezra does a very public, very obvious response of grief to this sin. Now, this sin also is pretty high profile as well. There had been leaders involved who had, had gotten caught up into this. So Ezra wants to make a very public, obvious statement here about the significance, the severity of this sin. And then in verse 4, there's also others who begin joining in with Ezra. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me. So Ezra started to kind of gather a crowd who were recognizing what was going on. People had approached him about this, so other people were in the know. And we're going to see in chapter 10 that there's a broader group that joins and, and confesses their sin. So Ezra makes a very clear tangible point in mourning, mourning sin and basically taking it seriously. We had been seeing in chapter 8, Ezra setting up the temple, the worship, we're getting things going. And then here in Ezra chapter 9, he basically pushes pause, time out. We can't keep pl playing this game the same way. We need to come and address this issue. And I think it speaks to the reality of what, what God wants from us most is not just a performance on Sunday, playing the songs, showing up, doing the different things. God cares about our hearts. God cares about our walk with him in our daily lives and in, in who we date, who we marry, how we conduct our finances, how we interact with people, what we think, what we watch, all those different areas of your life that are outside of a religious context. God, God cares about that. God wants you to follow him in those areas. And if those areas aren't in line, aren't seeking to serve him, then the worship isn't really as relevant. And so that's, that's why Ezra is basically calling a time out here, really bringing people together, making, it, making a scene about this. And I want to ask you, how seriously do you take your sin? If you're like me, it can be tempting to kind of make some excuses. All right, I was harsh to my kids, or I lost my temper here, but that's not a big deal, you know, that's fine. Uh, it, it can be tempting to basically grade ourselves by our own standards and keep lowering our own standards until we're definitely a good person. Sin can tend to blind us in those ways. We can kind of rationalize things in our head saying, ah, oh, this is probably okay, this is fine. But in contrast, God is perfectly holy. God stands above us. God judges us not by our own standards, but by his perfect standards. And which exposes our sin, exposes the reality of what's going on in our hearts, exposes pride in us exposes the depth of, of what's going on. And, and a right response is to come before God, grieving what we've done. It's part of the reason we have a time of confession 
that, that Dylan led us in each week, to just pause and remember, yeah, I, I am sinful. I do need Christ to recognize that even if we can te- be tempted to think of ourselves as a good person, how do we see beyond that? Where do we see those areas that we are sinning and that we're kind of ignoring. So Ezra here is inviting us to consider God's holiness, to consider the severity of our sin. Then notice he moves from grief and mourning about the sin to a prayer of confession. So we see that in verse 6, he says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. So Ezra moves from an outward display of grief, of just, just basically being there quietly with a group of people. That's still a, an appropriate time to, perhaps you could come before God. If you don't have words to pray, it can be appropriate just to come before God. And be, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm grieving this. I'm wrestling with this. I'm aware of my sin. It's appropriate to just spend some time in silence. But it's also appropriate to come to God and speak to him and, and confess our sins. One thing that's kind of interesting here is Ezra uses the word "our." He says, "Our iniquities." <coughs> Excuse me. We're going to see in chapter ten as the people confess their sins. There's actually a list of those who are guilty of intermarrying with idolatrous peoples of the land, and Ezra's name doesn't show up there. So Ezra wasn't guilty specifically of this sin, but Ezra is certainly guilty of other sins. And for Ezra, if Ezra had approached it as well, you all are guilty. I'm, I'm fine. I'm the good guy here. This would be prideful. But instead, Ezra identifies. He, he identifies as a sinner himself. He's like, okay, I'm in this too, guys. Look, Lord, we're all guilty before you. We, we need your forgiveness. We stand under your judgment. He's putting himself in the people's shoes as, as a fellow sinner. So he's setting an example for the people of confession, repentance, and taking sin seriously. And we're going to see some of the people did join him, and then even more in chapter 10. That's important for us. Even whether you're a Christian leader, what's going on in your life, it's important to remember you are a sinner. And you can set an example of bringing up your sins before God and asking for forgiveness. So the prayer of confession, taking our sin seriously, helps us recognize we are sinners. Our sin is serious. We can't excuse ourselves out of it. But there's another angle as well. Perhaps you felt like, oh, man, I am a, I'm a big sinner. I can't come to church. My guilt rises up to the heavens. I kind of felt this a couple of weeks ago. It's coming to one of the um, uh, Wednesday night groups after I'd had a some bad interactions with my kids, and I was like, ah, God, I'm a sinner. But the prayer of confession is a way to approach that as well, to say, God, I can come before you in my sin. And we see Ezra, he's, he's standing before God boldly as well. He's acknowledging his sin, but he's saying, God, I want to come before you. And as, as we're going to see, the reason he can do that is because of God's steadfast love and mercy that ultimately recognized in Christ, who pays the penalty for our sins and allows us to have that relationship. So I would ask you, if you're afraid to come to church, if you feel dirty, afraid to talk to God, consider the example of Ezra and his courage in coming before God and invite God wants you to speak to him even in those times. So we've seen, we've seen the people sin. We've seen how Ezra grieved, how Ezra prayed in confession. 
let's talk a little bit about the attributes of God we see coming out in Ezra's prayer, specifically God's steadfast love, his mercy, but also his judgment. So take a look with me here a little bit more at Ezra's prayer. He says here in verse 7, he says, For the days of our fathers to this day we have been in great guilt, and and for our iniquities we, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hands of the kings of the lands to soar, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. So he's referring back to the sins of the people of Israel, the nation, the idolatry, the injustice of the, of the kings of Israel. If you read 2 Kings, you'll be able to see this. King after king did what was evil in, in the eyes of the Lord. God was very patient, merciful to them. Eventually, there was, a, there was a breaking point. There was a consequence where God's judgment was brought out brought about this captivity. So he's referring here to God's justice. God can't leave sin unpunished. So we see God's, a picture of God's justice here and the way he talks about the exile. But then notice in verse 9, he says, Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God. So he's saying, Although the people's sin was great, although they had this consequence of this exile, God had steadfast love to them to bring them back to the land. He was merciful. He was gracious to them. As we think about our lives, now that we're past Christ, we don't have quite the same dynamics of here's this promised land that God's given us through this this old covenant, but some of the same principles apply. So God created all people to be in a relationship with him. And all of us, as we've been talking about, have sinned against God in various ways. And there's a very real consequence for that. The same principle of God's justice that sin's going to lead to judgment still applies. And for us today, it applies not only in a physical context, may or may not happen. Some of your sins will probably have physical consequences on this earth. Some, Some probably won't. But ultimately, the biggest consequence of sin is separation from God. And that can even last after your death, for all eternity, if you're apart from Christ. So there's this reality of the exile in our day represents God's judgment on sin, that that, that is a separation from God and his blessing and his goodness, that sin results in that. Same principle applies to us today. We would be separated from God in our sins apart from Christ. But this steadfast love and mercy, we see God's mercy here as well. In verse 13, he talks about after all that's come upon us for our evil deeds, our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, have given us a remnant such as this. So we see God's justice, yes, also a steadfast love and mercy. And then in chapter 8, we saw the, the sacrifices for sin. So you could think about all these as parallel lines that all lead and meet at the cross of Christ. There, he was a perfect sacrifice that took on the penalty for all of our sins fulfilling God's justice. But then also, because Jesus took the penalty, we don't have to. For anyone who would trust in Jesus, who would believe in him, they'll be forgiven of their sins. That's God's steadfast love and mercy manifested in the cross. So we see here in Ezra 9, glimpses of God's attributes, God's heart, and then in 8, the sacrifices that all point to Jesus. So for you today, If you aren't sure where you stand in your relationship with Jesus, I would encourage you to put your faith in him. If you're still uncertain about that, if you're asking questions, you should chat with somebody perhaps who came with you 
or in our connection cards, Dylan mentioned, you can indicate that you're interested in talking to someone about a relationship with Christ. We'd love to meet with you, discuss scripture with you, pray with you, help you walk through some of those questions in your journey of coming to know Jesus. For me this week, after that structural engineer left, the next day, I was feeling guilty. I was like, I know what I need to do. The guy's name was Farzam. So the next morning, I called him back. I said, hey, Farzam, you probably sensed I had some fear and shame associated with that deck. You know, there's a little story here. I told him the story. And I said, I, I want you to come back, and I want you to look at that deck. And he said, yeah, you, you got definitely got that loudly column that's leaning. You got to replace that. And he said, I want to hold Doug. I want, I want you to I want to hold Doug down there. I want to see if it goes down. I want to see if it goes down to the frost depth. I'm going to come out. We'll do a report, and we'll figure it all out. And, I, and I, I saw as well a neighbor getting a deck redone, called the contractor. So now I have some, some, some hope in that area. And that's what God wants to do with our lives. He wants us to be willing to expose the uncomfortable, the awkward, the leaning, the broken parts of our lives for him to come to restore us. God wants to renew us. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And part of that is just in your own quietness of your heart towards God. Part of that's also in community. We want Beacon to be a place where you could confess your sins to a trusted friend, fellow believer who could help walk with you. I had an experience a number of years ago with a, a dear friend, and he was an elder at the time at, at Beacon who I had talked about some, some issues of anger in my life. He met with me, we read through a book, had a number of conversations, and it was a really helpful experience. And so we have different areas in our church that we seek to facilitate that type of confession, relationship building, connection. We have men's and women's discipleship groups. We also have a community group that meets Wednesday nights. And through some of those relationships, you may be able to even have side conversations, prayer in a coffee shop with a fellow brother or sister sharing about these things. God wants us to be a part of the restoration process with each other in church, but also with those who don't know Christ. And so I would invite you as well, if you're not a Christian today, if you're unsure of what you think about God and the Bible and Jesus, I would ask you to consider as well your own feelings of guilt. We've been talking a lot about guilt and sin, but just think about your own feelings of guilt, how you think about right and wrong. Could that be a pointer to God who created the beautiful, intricate universe and also stands behind our own sense of right and wrong as the ultimate uh, moral foundation. Let me pray for us. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for this picture in Ezra 9 of the seriousness of sin. Lord, we see how, how Ezra didn't just take it lightly, but made a really big public display of it and would come to you in confession. Lord, I, I pray in our own lives that we would take our sin seriously, that we wouldn't dismiss it easily, that we also wouldn't shy away from you, cower in fear, or just disengage when, when we recognize sin in our lives, Lord, but that we could come before you, that we could confess our sin, Lord, that you could come uh, heal us, renew us in our hearts through, through Christ, through what he's done on the cross. I pray that we at Beacon could be a community where we're, we're journeying together with each other in these areas, God. And I pray, Lord, for those who perhaps are investigating you today, that you would show yourself to them, that you would Make yourself real to them. We thank you for all these things, Lord. Help us to love and serve you in the rest of our service. Amen.